Good afternoon, church. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to Hebrews chapter 3, to the passage our friend Piper read for us a moment ago. Hebrews chapter 3. We're um, on a, we're we're kind of in the home stretch of our series titled Gospel Saturated, and since we've been taking the past month and a half, two months to really explore kind of our desire to see lives flourish in gospel saturated relationships, and the climax of this series it'll be brought to completion next weekend at our all church retreat. So next weekend, all three of our expressions will be gathering up in Bellingham, Washington, at the Fur Retreat Center. We'll be spending a couple of days together, uh, just retreating and getting away. It promises to be a rich time, and and it is there where we're going to finish our series, uh, Gospel Saturated, and we'll talk more about that happening towards the end of the gathering. But for now, let me just kind of remind you of where we've been. We've been looking at different aspects, different profiles of gospel-saturated relationships, and we said that a gospel-saturated relationship or those types of relationships should look diverse, that the gospel kind of stretches the borders of our hearts so that we're willing to include all types of people in our relationships. The gospel compels us to cross cultures and subcultures to engage in meaningful and rich relationships with people who are not like us. But then we also said not only do gospel-saturated relationships look diverse, we said that they, they also look like humble service, that as we move towards others, we're willing to stoop low in our desire to serve others and to bless others and to help others. But then we also said that these types of relationships look like honesty, that gospel-saturated relationships require you and I walking in the light together, confessing our sins and disclosing ourselves one to another so that the gospel may be uh, administered to our hearts as we walk in the light together, living honest lives before Jesus, before each other, and even with, our, with ourselves. But then last week, we, uh, we tied to that. Uh, gospel-saturated relationships also look like forgiveness. These are, this is the type of fellowship, the type of community where forgiveness should be granted limitlessly in our relationships. We should be willing to forgive one another of the various offenses that come against us. The more we journey together, as you will experience, the more that will happen. And as that happens, we must be a forgiving community as we recognize the relationship between the gladness of the Holy Spirit in our church and grieving the Holy Spirit in our church, being tied to how willing we are to forgive one another and to bear with one another and to press into those dynamics together. And today we're gonna add uh, a four, another feature to gospel-saturated relationships, and it's this idea of gospel-saturated encouragement. Gospel-saturated relationships are characterized by encouragement. Now, this is one of my favorite words in the English language, and it hasn't always been one of my favorites. Usually, as a kid, and I would hear this call to encourage one another and to be an encourager of others, I always kind of, kind of interpreted it in a, in, a, in a bad way, where I just kind of viewed it as kind of a Hallmark-ish, hokey-ish, cheesy-ish, uh, kind of sissified in my upbringing, where I just didn't feel like encouragement was something I needed, and I didn't feel comfortable just opening myself up to encourage other people, and it was all because I didn't understand what encouragement is. And now that I've come to a better understanding of this dynamic, this is one of my favorite words in the English language. And the reason for that is because nestled right in the middle of this term is the word courage. When you're talking about encouraging another person, you're talking about infusing courage into their lives. And this is what encouragement is meant to do. It is to infuse courage into your faith, into your heart, so that you can deal with the struggles of life, with the trials of life, with the temptations of life in a faith-empowering sort of way. 
So we, when we, we encourage each other, we're encouraging each other by infusing courage literally into our lives. And the scriptures say there are many ways in which we can do this. We can encourage one another with our example to be sure. It is encouraging to see families and singles in our church facing sufferings in this world in various ways and and see their faith kind of hold fast in the midst of those struggles. And their example to us in those moments is encouraging. It infuses courage into our lives so that we become more courageous when we face those types of things as well. So certainly, we can encourage one another through our example, but the way I really want to kind of focus in on it today is by is by exploring our use of words, encouraging one another with how well or how poorly we may use words. Nelson Mandela would put it this way when he was thinking back upon his imprisonment. He says, it is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison have done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are and how real speech is in its impact on the way people live and die. Words are powerful. And we should use words well in our relationships with each other, strategically using them to infuse courage into the faith, into the heart, into the soul of those that we're in fellowship with, that we're in community with, that we're journeying through life with. I see this dynamic playing out in my family a lot when, I, when my daughter Delaney is scared. And she may be afraid because she's thinking about something or she's read something in a story and it's just kind of unsettled her. And I can see that happening and she's afraid and, and I'm there with her. My presence is there, but, but for some reason just being in the same room as her isn't, isn't quite enough. But the moment I open up my mouth and I say, Delaney, you don't have anything to be afraid of. I'm right here with you. The moment I use my words, it, that's, that dispels fear from her heart. It infuses some courage and brings some composure back to her soul whenever I, I call attention to what is true and I call attention to what is real in that moment. But then the same thing happens, say, when my son Asher, when I can see him kind of wrestling with something he's ashamed of because maybe he's done something he wasn't supposed to do and he's now feeling shame for what he has done and you can just see him wrestling with it. It just kind of tears him up inside and, and I ask him about it and, and the whole while he's just kind of just having a hard time and I'll look at Asher and I'll use my words and I'll say, Asher, do you realize there's nothing you can tell me? There's nothing you can tell me about yourself or about something that you have done that's gonna make me not love you anymore? There's not a single thing that you can say. You are my son and I love you. You can tell me anything. When I use my words and I remind him of those realities, all of a sudden he finds the courage to tell me about what he's just done wrong. He finds the courage to disclose himself to me in those moments. It's all about using our words to infuse courage, infuse strength, infuse faith into the hearts and lives of those that we are running with. And when you step into Hebrews chapter 3, understand that the passage before us tonight was, is essentially given to us because the writer of Hebrews knows that you and I will never make it through this life. We'll never make it through this life without daily gospel-saturated encouragement. We're not going to make it to the end of our days in faith unless we find a rhythm of daily gospel-saturated encouragement flowing in and around our lives. 
And you just kind of step back for a moment. You can see, you can suspect that this is true because you know as well as I do that life in a fallen world is hard. The life of faith is not easy. Following Jesus isn't simple. And there are days and there are stretches and there are seasons of walking with Jesus through this world when we are going to be intimidated, we are going to be fearful, we're going to be wrestling with guilt and shame, wondering if we can continue on in our faith. And it is in those moments where we need those around us to step up in our lives and to use those words well by infusing gospel-saturated encouragement into our souls. I believe this is one of the main reasons the book of Hebrews was written. The writer of Hebrews is writing to the first generation of Christians, specifically a group of Hebrew Hebrew Christians. First generation of believers who are walking walking with Jesus. They've been rescued out of their Judaic background. They've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But much to their surprise, perhaps, once they put their faith in Jesus, life for them did not suddenly get easy. In many ways, following Jesus made their life harder in this world. And so they were being persecuted, they were struggling, they were suffering as a result of their faith in many, in many ways. These Hebrew Christians were losing friendships, they were losing business associates and partnerships. These Hebrew Christians were losing families as families were kind of cutting them out of their lives because they were believing in Jesus, that he is Lord, that he is the Messiah, And so they're feeling kind of pushed to the fringes of society. And as a result, many of them feel like they should turn back. And they're wanting to turn their back on their faith in Jesus and return to their Jewish heritage without Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing these words to encourage them, to strengthen them, to say, don't give up, don't pull out, don't stop too soon, persevere to the end. That's why this book was written. And what's interesting is that the writer of this passage sees similarities between what that first generation of Christians was experiencing and what the people of Israel was experiencing in the Old Testament. If you look back up the page into verse 7, you'll see some words there that we didn't read a moment ago, but let's check them out. Verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, that is God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. And so essentially, the writer's quoting Psalm 95, which is echoing some events that went down in the people of Israel's lives as they were journeying through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. And he's saying, consider their example, consider how their hearts rebelled against the goodness of God and the provision of God and the promises of God and how that, describing it as evil, describing it as unbelieving. And then he gets into verse 12 and says, now watch out, brothers and sisters. In other words, don't be like them. But he sees the pull, he sees the similarities, he sees the temptation that is latching on to the hearts of this first generation of Christ followers, and he's reminding them, look, don't go in that direction, watch out, persevere. And what's interesting, when you look at verses 7 through 11, the events kind of described there are alluded to multiple times in the book of Exodus, but I'll just give you one example in Exodus chapter 17 where the people of Israel had just been brought out of Egyptian slavery. God is leading them into the promised land, but in order to get to the promised land, they journey through the wilderness for 40 years. And the wilderness proves to be a tough place. It proves to be a trying place. 
And there were times and there were stretches in their journey when their needs weren't being met as they thought they should be met. And this caused some nasty stuff to spill out of their hearts, some things that God wanted to carve out of them so that he could replace in them a heart of faith and humility and trust. And so listen to how it goes down in Exodus chapter 17. It says, the entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses, saying, why did you ever bring us up out of from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Do you hear the question? They're thirsty in the wilderness. There is no water for them to drink in the, that they can see. And all of a sudden, they start grumbling and complaining. They start exercising unbelief. They start rebelling against their God, saying, you're not good enough. For some reason, you've brought us out of Egypt, and you've brought us here to die. You're not going to take us to the promised land, as you had said. And so they're no longer trusting in the Lord, and this unbelief is coming out of their hearts, and it proves to be very poisonous and nasty, so much so that when you drop down to verse 7, it says that Moses names the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites complained, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So here's what I want you to think about. That's the event that the writer of Hebrews is drawing upon to show, draw a similarity and analogy with his first century Christian audience. And essentially what you have going down here is that he knows what you and I will soon experience the longer we walk with Jesus. Is that there are many days, many stretches, many seasons. As we are walking through Jesus, walking with Jesus through a fallen world where things are going to be challenging, things are going to be tough, things are going to be hard, and all of a sudden, our hearts are going to be tempted to rebel. Our hearts are going to be tempted to complain and to ask and to grumble, asking questions like, Lord, why did you ever save us if you're not going to take care of us? Believing a lie that says, well, if you just give your life to Jesus, life will get easier for you, but that promise is never found in the scriptures. In many ways, when you become a Christian, life can become more challenging and more difficult for you. Why? Well, because you're stepping into community with people that you might not naturally gravitate towards, and that's hard. You're going to find yourself wrestling with sin and resisting sin, and that's a struggle. That's a, a wrestling match that wasn't necessarily a part of your life before meeting Jesus. You're going to find all kinds of things changing in your life that's going to unsettle things in your life, and there are going to be moments when you are wrestling with the Lord in the wilderness, so to speak. Now, when you think about that word wilderness, the imagery there found in verse 8, when you think about wilderness and this being the place where the people of Israel were journeying through en route to the promised land, understand when you, when you hear that word wilderness, don't think about the lush forests of the Pacific Northwest. Don't think about a land that you can go into and you can live off of for a very, very, very long time. There are plenty of resources in the wilderness here for you to live off of and that, you, that could take care of you there. But that's not what's being, uh, what Israel experienced. They weren't walking through a lush forest. They were walking through the wilderness of a desert. And in the desert, the resources were minimal. And in the desert, resources don't last very long. They dry up and they will be blown away. And there's a sense, the longer you live as you journey through this world, where the things that you're going to look to to sustain you, the things that you're going to look to to provide you with life and peace and comfort, 
the good things, even great things in your life, there's a sense in which in this world, those things one day will dry up and be blown away. The wilderness imagery there in verse 8 is designed to remind us that everything in this world is temporary. The best things in your life will go away. Your health is going to deteriorate. Your bank account's going to run dry. You're going to lose your family. Life in this world is temporary. And if we're not in a community that can encourage us as we're navigating the temporal nature of this world and the struggles and the trials of this wilderness world, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it to the end and be able to sing songs like the song we just sang with integrity. When our end end draws near and we're saying our hearts are going to continue to sing, we're not going to be able to sing that song with integrity apart from being sunk into an encouraging, a gospel-saturated community. You see, what happens as you walk through the, the wilderness of this world, sin will begin to lie to you. Sin will begin to lie to you about how good your God is. Sin will begin to lie to you about how strong your God is. You're going to start disbelieving that God is for you or You're going to think he's against you because maybe he's not providing for you in the ways that you hoped and the ways that you expected. Maybe you've lost your job or you want a relationship that you're still wanting and it's not happening and you're going to be tempted to question the goodness of God in in those moments. And in those moments, if you're not careful, when you experience the hardness of this life, you too will become hard. You too will become cynical. You too will become bitter. You too will become um, just a hard-hearted person believing the lies that God is not for you and Jesus won't ultimately take care of you. And so I want you to see that the reason why gospel-saturated encouragement is needed is because life in a fallen world is too hard. It's too difficult. This is why the writer says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, so none of you will be deceived into thinking that your God is not for you and that your God is not enough, will not be enough to you. Don't be deceived in that direction. So that's why gospel-saturated encouragement is needed, but what does gospel-saturated encouragement sound like? How do we know if it's being given to us and how do we know if we're giving it to other people? Well, here's where I want you to consider. If you were to go home tonight and sit down with the book of Hebrews and just read it from start to finish, which is something you could do, you could sit down and read this book in one, in one sitting. And if you were to do that, you're going to discover that Hebrews reads differently than some of the other books in the New Testament. For one, it's not a letter like the book of Romans or the book of 1 John or the book of 1 Peter or Ephesians. It's not a letter per se. The book of Hebrews reads more like a sermon. It's written by a guy. We do not know his name, and he's writing to these believers to encourage them, and essentially he's written out a sermon for them to consider, a sermon that they are to take in all at once, that they would have heard read out loud to them in one sitting, designed to infuse their faith with courage so they don't give up in their relationship with Jesus. But if you were to sit down with this sermon and read through it from start to finish, you you may risk getting whiplash. You may risk getting whiplash because this 
book kind of swings wildly from some very hard, tough warnings and some very tender and grace-filled exhortations and statements. We might say invitations. Let me show you. If you look down at verse 12, you find one. Watch out, brothers and sisters, and there's this warning about not having an evil, unbelieving heart. Then you drop down to verse 15. Today, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you jump over to Hebrews chapter 6, there's a warning there about those who do not persevere in their faith and the validity of their salvation. Hard, tough warnings. But then at the same time, as you're reading those statements or you're hearing those statements, then you're also going to find peppered and kind of woven all throughout the book these tender invitations, these grace-filled statements I'll give you one. Chapter 4, verse 16. Listen to this invitation. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Meaning mercy and grace is available to help us respond well to the words of warning that are peppered throughout this book. And so when you think about what gospel-saturated encouragement sounds like, that's what we're getting after. It sounds like both tough warnings and tender invitations. And if we're going to be encouraging people to one another, we have to learn to to put both threads or to weave both threads together in our encouragement of one another. We have to be people who's willing to deliver tough warnings. And we need to be people who's extending tender, graceful invitations. So you consider that, and then you consider one of the best examples, I think, of this dynamic coming together. It's found, I believe, in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, there's a story of these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they've recently lost their brother. They've reached a hard stretch of life in a fallen world. They are experiencing the fallout of sin by way of suffering and death and loss, and so they're grieving the loss of their brother. And so they come to Jesus together, and And they both give Jesus two the same identical statement. They say the exact same thing to Jesus. They approach him and they say this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, he would not have died. They're complaining, if you will. They're they're grieving in Jesus' direction. They're saying, had you just been here, this would have never happened. A question that implies his goodness is is being challenged, his trustworthiness is being challenged. But then Jesus responds to both Mary and Martha in two distinct ways, but in two ways that give us a picture of what encouragement looks like. He looked at Martha in response to that statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And to Martha, he looks at her and he drops truth. He looks at her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he declares a proposition true about who he is. A hard truth for her to hear in that moment, perhaps, where she's challenging him and he responds with this self-disclosure saying, this is who I am. Don't forget who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. But then he turns to Mary and in response to that same statement coming from the other sister, we're told that Jesus didn't say a word. Instead, he responded by weeping. He responded by crying. He responded by, by weeping in response to Mary's statement. So there you have a statement of truth, and then you have the outpouring of tears. And I think together you begin to see what a guy by the name of Dick Lucas would describe as an encouragement ministry as a ministry of both truth and tears. 
It is, an, it is a ministry whereby we are delivering truths to people and we are doing it in tender, compassionate, relationship-oriented ways. It's the ministry of truth and tears. This is what gospel-saturated encouragement is all about. This is what Ephesians chapter 4 is getting after when the Apostle Paul writes that we are to be speaking the truth in love. It's truth and tears. This is what encouragement is all about. Now, step back for a moment. You consider, okay, if that's what gospel-saturated encouragement is, if it's truth and tears being woven together in our orientation towards each other, in our, in our relationships together, then why, is, why must these two be woven together? And I, and I would encourage you to think along these lines. Truth without tears is brutal. If you are someone who just drops into a person's life and pulls the pin on the grenade and drops truth into their souls, you're going to do far more damage than you think you're doing. Truth without tears is brutal. Truth without tears is useless. Meaning if you're dropping truths in people's lives without letting them know that you're ultimately for them and that you love them and that you care for them, you know what you're going to become? You're going to become precisely what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A, you're just going to become noisy. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is precisely what Paul is getting after. If I speak human and angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and that's the gift that says I'm going to drop truth bombs on people. If I have that gift and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, what are you? Nothing. You're useless. Ministry with truth without tears is damaging. It is not good. It is not God-honoring, and it doesn't achieve the ends that you want the truth to achieve. Truth without tears is brutal. Brutal. But then on the flip side of that, tears without truth is sentimental. If you're someone who just likes to love people and never rock the boat, never deliver tough warnings, never bring hard words because you love them and, and you want to be for them or with them, you don't want to risk the relationship, understanding that your tears, so to speak, without truth, that's just sentimental Christianity. That's hallmark. That's not holy. That's tear, tears without truth. It doesn't do anyone any good either. You see, if I wanted to be, if all I wanted when I thought about encouragement was for somebody to weep with me but never to tell me what's true, I'd just buy a dog. All you need is a dog. You don't need people. Just get a pet. You see, a dog will weep with you. A dog will reflect back to you whatever emotional state you're in in a given moment. If you're happy, they're going to be happy. If you're sad, they're going to be happy. I'm sad with you. That's what dogs do. But a dog's not going to speak truth to you. A dog's not going to tell you anything you don't want to hear. It's not going to do anything for you. Get a pet. Don't surround yourself with people if that's your understanding of encouragement. But understand when it comes to gospel-saturated encouragement, we're talking about truth and tears, truth and love, grace and truth, however you want to say it. It's about speaking that which is real to people. But as we speak those truths, we want those we're speaking to to know that we're ultimately for them and we're not against them, that we love them, we care for them, we want to minister to them. So we establish relationship with them as we're conveying these truths and encouraging them with these tough warnings or tender invitations, whatever they may be. Gospel-saturated encouragement weaves truth and tears together. 
And this is when we begin to see how the book of Hebrews is designed to show us that Jesus is the ultimate encourager, that he's the one who does this best. Jesus is the ultimate encourager, and the book of Hebrews points this out in a few ways. I'll just give you one. If you think back in the Old Testament, there were essentially three important offices that were anointed by God and that were used by God to lead the people in their life and in their worship. You had prophets, you had priests, and you had kings. Now, throughout the history of Israel after the book of Exodus, you don't meet anyone who ever occupied all three of those roles or even two of those roles at the same time. You either had the king who was entrusted and anointed to represent God to the people. He was the one that was going to execute justice in the the land to uphold that which was right and good. He was going to represent God to the people. But then you also had priests, and priests weren't like kings in the sense that they didn't represent God to the people, they represented the people to God. And so they were sympathetic, they kind of came to people, they, they, they approached God on behalf of the people, and they, therefore they sympathized with the struggles and the sufferings and the sins of the people so that they could offer up sacrifices that were needed for their cleansing and for their redemption. And all throughout the scriptures, you would have these kings, these priests, and these prophets kind of doing their thing. But again, you never saw one person doing both of those in the nation of Israel. In fact, the only time we come close to that is in the book of Genesis. And it happens when a guy named Abraham meets a man named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a strange figure. We don't know a lot about him. He shows up and he's gone in a flash. Very mysterious figure in the Old Testament. But there are two things we learn about Melchizedek that are quite clear. On one hand, he was a type of king. Abraham would refer to him as a king. But he wasn't just a king. He also did priestly things. He offered sacrifices on other people's behalf. And so in Melchizedek, you find the one exception in all the Old Testament of one person holding both offices, being a priest and a king. And again, we don't know much about Melchizedek, but when you get into the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews sheds a little light because the writer of Hebrews says that this Melchizedek Melchizedek character what he was was a foreshadowing he was a foretaste of who Jesus would be which is why there's so much emphasis in this book between Melchizedek and Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate encourager he is the one who is both king and priest at the same time This means that as king, he holds to absolute truth. He upholds righteousness and justice. He he subscribes to that which is right and true and real. He represents God to the world in that way. But then as our priest, what does he do? He represents us to our God. And you know he represents us well because when he stepped into this world, he did so to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, to identify with our human condition, to be tempted in ways like we are tempted Yet he remained obedient while we didn't. And as a result, he can go before the Father and he can intercede for us. He can represent us. He can be our priest and our king all at the same time. And the reason why this is so important is because this is the only way you and I can really get after the cross. And it's the only way we can really get after what gospel-saturated encouragement should look like. You see, if Jesus ministered with, was committed to truth over tears, he would have never died for us. He would have stayed in heaven and said, this is right, that is wrong. If you do, as, do what's wrong, the consequences are on you. He could have stayed removed from us and declared that truth over tears. 
Or he could have committed to tears over truth and then he would have lived his life and he wouldn't have told anybody about what is right. He wouldn't have told anybody about what sin is. He wouldn't have told anybody about how to repent and believe the gospel. He would have just been about identifying with us and loving us, but he wouldn't necessarily have rescued us. Why? Because his life wouldn't have been lived in obedience. He wouldn't have honored his father so that he could do something significant for us on the cross. So you consider that and you turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. Just hold that in your minds. Flip one page in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 5 and listen to how the ministry of Jesus is described. It says, During his earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, that is, his heavenly Father. And he was heard because of his reverence, that is, his obedience. He trusted his God. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. We get this. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There's the connection. Jesus is our king and our priest. Jesus is the one who's committed to absolute Holiness. He's the one who takes sin seriously so much so that he would go to the cross and die for it. But at the same time, he extends grace generously. When he went to the cross, he did not go there to die for his own sin. He went there to die for our sin so that he might become our great high priest representing us to God. And this is how he encourages us. And if you want to become a gospel-saturated encourager, you have to let Jesus encourage you with these realities. You have to recognize that when he died on the cross, he died because he was taking your sin seriously, while at the same time, he's extending grace generously. When that reality grips you and you let Jesus encourage you, only then will you be prepared to step into a ministry of truth and tears. Only then will you be able to encourage others likewise. You see, the reality of Jesus being our king and our priest, it it means that Jesus tells us hard things. He's willing to tell us, you're wrong, you're in sin, you're in rebellion, your heart is sliding in an evil direction because you're not believing in the goodness of God. Jesus tells us that in the gospel. But he doesn't just drop those truth bombs in our lives, he drops those truth bombs so that we would look to him for deliverance and we'd come to him for mercy and for grace, for sympathy and acceptance, remembering that he is our king and our priest. He is our ultimate encourager. So we come to Jesus and we let him minister to us in these ways. We want to take these realities into our souls. And as we take these realities into our souls, that's when Jesus will begin to turn us into little versions of himself. That's when Jesus will begin to turn us into his image so that we start going and doing likewise. We start encouraging little e one another. We start infusing courage into one another's souls by delivering tough Warnings and tender invitations all at the same time. Essentially, we're multiplying what Jesus is pouring into our souls. That's what we do when we become a gospel-saturated church. Multiplying the ministry of Jesus and how we minister to each other. Now, if you're going to do that, though, if you're going to become a, if you're going to let Jesus turn you into a little version of himself in that regard, there's, simple, there's two things I want you to think about. There's two things you, you got to kind of do if you're going to move in this direction, if we're going to encourage one another. The first, if you're going to do this, you have to get to know Scripture. You have to know what truth is, right? If you're not a student of the Scriptures, you're not going to be very good at encouraging other people. 
You have to get to know the scriptures because the scriptures tell us what is right, what is wrong. The scriptures tell us what is sin and what is not. The scriptures tell us where we're in error and where we're off. We have to get to know the scriptures so that we can know what is right and what is true. You'll see this in the passage when you look back at Hebrews chapter 3 and you jump up to verse 7. And notice in verse 7, it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. Essentially, what the writer is doing, he's drawing on Scripture in his desire to encourage and to strengthen the people he's writing to. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, he does this. The Old Testament is his text for this sermon. So he's weaving it all throughout this book. And if you and I are going to become encouragers of one another, then we have to learn, we have to know the Scriptures so that we can thread the scriptures into our conversations and we can be aware of what is true and what is false. We can identify the lies of the enemy by reminding people of what's true in the gospel. But why? Because we are knowing the scriptures. But not only do you want to get to know the scriptures, it's not enough for you to know the Bible if you're going to be an encourager. You can't just know the Bible and expect to encourage other people. If you really want to encourage other people, you also have to get to know other people. You have to know the scriptures, and you have to know people. This means you have to move towards others in real relationships. You have to convince people that you care for them, that you love them, that you are for them. So you get to know scriptures, that's where truth comes from, and you get to know people, that's where sympathy and empathy and love comes from. And so you move towards others, and you want to get to know them by asking questions. Ask open-ended questions so that you can invite people to disclose themselves and open themselves up to you. Don't ask leading questions that take you to an end that you already have in mind. Pursue people and get to know people. If you want to be an encourager, you have to be able to connect and sympathize with others. Isn't this what we're told Jesus does in Hebrews chapter 4? In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that Jesus... Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows us because he came towards us. Do you know others because you're moving towards others? So if you're going to encourage people, you have to know the scriptures and you have to know people. And in order to get to know people, ask open-ended questions. Pursue real knowledge of the other. And let me just say this too. As you are moving towards each other and you're seeking to get to know each other, Your first conversation with another person in this room shouldn't be because you have the goal and the agenda of dropping a truth bomb. That's not where you start. Your first conversation with another person in this room should be designed that you can get to know them and to show them that you are attentive and aware of their presence and you want to know them. You want to speak truth, but you want to speak truth in the context of love. You want to love the other person. And so you want to move towards others and get to know them in those kinds of ways. And as you also kind of press into that direction and you, and you remember, okay, the first time I talked to this person, I don't want it to be just me launching grenades at them. I want it to, I want it to be designed to convince them that I love them and I care for them. But then at the same time, as you're asking questions, be prepared to listen well. 
If you're gonna get to know another person, you have to listen well if you're gonna understand kind of where they're coming from, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, so you can know exactly what scriptures are needed in that moment and discern how to encourage them. You don't encourage every person the exact same way. So you want to be a listener. You want to, be, you want to get to know people by asking questions and listening well so that you can love them well with the truth that you will inevitably communicate over the course of time. And I want to encourage you to think about this too. As you're stepping towards the other person and you're getting to know people, try to avoid imposing your life stage and imposing your life accomplishments upon them. And what I mean by is this. If you are a married person, the first question you should ask a single person isn't, hey, when are you going to get married? Do you think that's really encouraging to the path and the journey that God has them on in this world? That's not encouraging. It's discouraging, and it may kick some nasty stuff out of their, up in their hearts so that they're saying, Lord, why, haven't you, why aren't you meeting this need? Why do people put these expectations upon me? Why are you, why are you putting this pressure upon me? It's coming from your people, and, and, and it can kick up some nasty stuff unnecessarily. It's not encouraging. It's discouraging. If you step into a relationship with a married couple and they don't have kids, the first question might not be, well, when are you going to have kids? That question may lead to all kinds of other struggles that they're currently having as they're dealing with life in a fallen world. So you want to be wise and shrewd in the questions you're asking of other people. Don't impose a life stage or a life accomplishment upon them as you interact with them. So we want to ask good questions, we want to listen well, and we want to be sensitive to where people are. But let me also say this, if somebody's been insensitive in the questions they've asked you recently, and you find yourself struggling because of somebody's asked you some of those hard personal questions that's kicked stuff up, extend grace. Chances are those people did not approach you in a way with malicious intent. They weren't intending to harm you or to discourage you or to make you think about things you haven't wanted to think about. Give grace. This is where we piggyback up on last week, where we forgive one another limitlessly and eagerly and willfully. We want to forgive each other of those types of offenses. And so be, extend grace to one another as you seek to encourage one another. You're not going to perfectly balance truth and tears in your life and in your relationships. You're not going to get it right all the time. But this is why we're in Christ together. This is why we're in process together. This is why we're journeying together so that we can love each other in these tangible, life-changing, faith-strengthening sort of ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider what it means to receive encouragement from you and reproduce encouragement to those around us, I pray that your grace would abound. And I pray that gospel-saturated encouragement would become the norm of our community of faith. I pray that we would speak truth and love, that we would be marked by truth and tears. I pray that we would love each other and that we would love each other enough to remind each other of what's a lie and to remind each other of what's true, to warn people, when, to warn each other when sin is threatening to destroy someone's life and to rob their joy. Give us grace to point that out. But as we're pointing that out, would you give us grace to invite, constantly invite people to Jesus over and over and over again. Let us find ourselves drawing near to your throne of grace 
seeking help in our times of need. And those times come all the time. So God, would you pour your grace into our church and make us encouragers of one another. God, I ask and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.